Welcome to Mind Reading's Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centred care and practice. It's animated by the question of whether doctors and patients speak the same language and how we can use narrative to bridge the evident gaps. Mind Reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life Project and the University of Birmingham, and has since expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland, including UCD School of English Drama and Film. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice especially in the field of mental health. So this series brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we had to postpone, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. Today's episode is entitled Written on the Body, Eating Disorders and Narrative. My name is Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady of the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. I'm joined for this episode by Harriet Parsons, Training and Development Manager at BodyWise, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, Consultant and Liaison in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Children's University Hospital Temple Street at UCD, Emily Trishanko, writer, researcher and blogger and recovery coach with particular interests in eating disorders, and Aoife Murray, who's the Programme and Events Manager at Children's Books Ireland. So first up in today's episode, written on the body, eating disorders and narrative, is Harriet Parsons. Harriet is the Training and Development Manager at BodyWise. She's a fully accredited psychoanalytic psychotherapist and holds an MSc in psychoanalytic psychotherapy from St. Vincent's Hospital School of Psychotherapy in UCD, an MA in Addiction Studies from DBS and a BA in Psychology also from DBS. Harriet joined BodyWise, the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland in 2005, and as Training and Development Manager works to provide the support component by BodyWise to the HSE National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders. Additionally, Harriet gives frequent training and lectures on the subject of eating disorders. So Harriet's going to set the scene for us today. Harriet. Thanks, Claire. And thanks for inviting me to speak today. So maybe I'll start off by setting the scene around the eating disorders in Ireland. So I suppose there's about, it's estimated that there's about 188,000 people who have an eating disorder in Ireland and um, approximately 1,800 new cases per year are identified. And that was pre-COVID. So post-COVID, I'm, I'm sure those figures will increase substantially. And when I say eating disorder, I guess I'm talking about anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder. Although binge eating disorder, it would be estimated affects about 3% of the adult population and it affects male and females 50-50. Since COVID, referrals have kind of skyrocketed and we've seen that both from stats coming out of treatment services and also on our own support services as well. So I think there's been about a 66% increase in hospital admissions and about one in every four is considered urgent. And so people are presenting physically very unwell and every case, you know, feeling very urgent. Certainly on our support services, our family support program attendance has increased 98%. Across all of our services, there's been a huge increase in people using it, looking out for support, looking for support since the lockdown last March. So that's kind of where we are at the moment. I suppose my story and where I um, enter into the world of mental health and eating disorders and working with people really had quite a circuitous route. So I began when I was 16, I went to ballet school in Russia and I trained as a ballet dancer there. And then I worked with 
Moscow City Ballet for a number of years. And when I came back from Russia, I took a break and I had one of those in my early 20s, kind of, well, what am I going to do with my life you know, moments um, that I think lots of people have. And at the time, there was a psychology BA in Dublin Business School or LSB as it was then, that was really a psychoanalytic course. And it was the first psychoanalytic BA in the English speaking world that was based on the model that Freud kind of proposed for, for how people should enter into the world of providing talking therapy. And that was that you study psychology and you study philosophy and then you study psychoanalysis. And that was the degree that I did at that time. So thinking about, you know, what we learned from literature and what we learned from writings, that's exactly how I entered into that world, you know, reading all of those kind of key Freudian texts. And Freud himself would have used, you know, some of his, um, one of his core case histories is on the Schreber case, which is an analysis of Schreber's own written account of his own psychosis. So, you know, that's kind of where I began with, with my own studies and with learning about what it is to listen to human subjectivity, what it is to try to understand when someone speaks to you, and how you can listen in a way that helps them to explore what is happening to themselves. Following on from that, I worked in the Rape Dublin Rape Crisis Centre for a year on their telephone counselling service, full time there for a year. And after that, I went back to DBS and I did an MA in addiction studies, which was also a psychoanalytic course. And that was looking at addiction through that psychoanalytic lens, which was um, incredibly interesting. And within that context, I suppose I really focused on eating disorders. And the idea of how can you understand an eating disorder within that framework? And then following that, I would have gone on to do my psychotherapy training, which was a psychoanalytic training in St. Vincent's um, School for Psychotherapy, which is UCD. And it was in my final year there that I got a part time job in BodyWise that was the Eating Disorders Association of Ireland. And I basically have never left since. So my job has morphed from being part time to being full time. And um, so that was 2005. So for the first kind of 10 years or so, I would have worked managing the support services. And really managing the support services is about delivering the services, but also it's about training the people to work on those services. And that's where I really felt that I could bring something to what BodyWise provides, because to my mind, trying to understand eating disorders and trying to understand a person's experience of having an eating disorder and what it might be like to provide support to that person. What it always seems to be a barrier with, uh, with people with eating disorders, and I'm not so sure whether it's there in other mental health areas or not, is this feeling of nobody understands me, nobody understands my eating disorder. My eating disorder is very particular, it's very special, it's my thing and you have nothing to offer me. So my whole work has been focused on how do we make our services feel to that person like we have something to offer them. And so probably already in that you can hear how, there, I was thinking about it this morning and there are basically three kind of psychoanalytic principles that I took from my training into the work that 
Bodywise provides in terms of support services. And, and this is where we, we cross over and interact with the idea of the narrative and of people's stories and of what we can learn about people's experience of a mental health problem, not only the person who has it, the problem, but also the people who are trying to help them and how that can benefit everybody, really. So the first idea, I guess, is this idea that psychoanalysis always privileges the particular over the general. So you're focused always on the subjective experience of the person that you're speaking to. When you look at Freudian theory, and you can see how it developed, how it changed, he discarded ideas, he took on new ideas. The reason why there's so much controversy and so much difficulty is because the theory came from the clinic. So the person was not, he didn't try to fit the theory to the person. He, he, he had his theory, but he listened. And if what they were saying didn't correspond, he would change his ideas. And it's that idea of privileging the particular over the general. And, and that is a core part if you're, if you're trying to provide support or help to somebody, I think particularly with an eating disorder, because they are so private about it. Um, because it feels particularly personal and intimate and special to them. And so within the support services, then what, uh, you know, what we try to train the people who are delivering the services to do is not to say, oh, yeah, I know a lot about eating disorders. I'm able to hear this and this is it. It's rather to hold back on that and to say, tell me what it is like for you. Tell me what that feels like. Tell me what the thoughts are in your head. So you're meeting the person where they're at and you're 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 learning about their eating disorder from them. And so part of that, of course, is, you know, we have a personal story section on our website. There's loads of books around eating disorders and that. And people get a huge amount from those stories, from identifying with the people who are writing them, from the things that people are saying. But at the same time. We have to be so careful because they can also be alienating because the person can feel like I don't fit in with that. Therefore, I'm different or I'm beyond help or it's not it's harder for me or or that. So so we're managing that space all the time. So that is the first kind of principle, I suppose, I was thinking about that I brought the second um, principle that I think is really important is the idea that when somebody is coming to you for treatment or for support, they have to think that you have something to offer them so that you know something about why they're suffering, about what's going on for them, that you have some insight that you can help them to, to learn about their experience. So from their side, they have to believe and think that you have something of value to offer them. But from your side, you absolutely have to know that you don't know necessarily what's going on for them. And in psychoanalysis, that's called the subject supposed to know. So you are the subject who's supposed to know, but you know that you don't know. And that is something that is really particularly important when you're offering a support service. And, you know, the people, our volunteers who come to us, you know, they feel they don't have confidence. They feel, oh, I need to know everything about eating disorders to be able to pick up the phone and take a call. And what we say to them is, no, you don't need to know everything. But you, 
you need to know that you don't know. So you use your not knowing as a tool and you take up a position of not knowing and then you ask, what is it like for you? Yeah, tell me what it is like for you. And that allows that safe space for the person to come in and say, well, this is how I experience it. This is what's going on for me. And they start to create their own language and their own words to be able to understand what's going on for them. So again, part of that understanding of oneself can come from reading, you know, from, from reading people's stories, from understanding what it, what the what the human experience is about you know this we need all of these things to be able to capture that to be able to understand it but at the same time we have to allow a person to be able to find their own words to describe it you know their own words to understand themselves better so that was kind of the second thing i thought of and the third thing i think is really important is so psychoanalysis would view people from a structural perspective and what that means is that the way we live and the way we suffer in particular is in, in a structural way so that there is this idea of, you know, as we navigate through being a baby, growing into a toddler, coming through Oedipus, um, you know, developing through the latent period into adolescence and into adulthood, that as we navigate all of these um, turning points and these different interactions, that they do mark us in some way and that the way we learn both how to relate to ourselves but also how we relate to the outside world is marked by how we come through these things now i suppose it's not freud would use the idea that it's a trauma in some way but i don't mean a trauma as in something awful has to happen it's just that it is overwhelming and we have to find a way of managing it and and you see that um, and that's that idea that um, the way we suffer is because we can learn about, we can learn why we do what we do. We can learn why we repeat the same things over and over. If we start to understand how we have come to, uh, to be the people that we are, to identify our own selves and that our identity is built up in layers. And a lot of those layers are actually from the outside world. So we gain a sense of ourselves from the outside world, yeah? So I'm a baby, I experience a sensation, it makes me cry, my mother feeds me, and I start to learn that that means hunger, yeah? So it's a retrospective. So we, we gain a sense and an understanding of ourselves from outside of ourselves. And what that means is that when you're working with somebody, when, when somebody comes and say you have, you know, in a helpline call and someone says, you know, I want to get treatment. I don't know where to go. I've tried lots of things. And and so you you answer that call and you think, great, I'm going to help this person. I'm going to say, well, why don't you try this? And they say, no, no, I tried that. That didn't work. You say, oh, OK, well, what about this? No, no, I tried that. That didn't work. And what starts to happen is that you're trying to address what the person seems to be asking rather than holding back and thinking about, well, what is actually going on here? What are they not saying? And so if you try directly to answer it, you kind of can miss the point. What you really want to do is allow a space for their own understanding of what's happening to come into that space. I hope that makes sense. And so I think that with the mind reading project and with this idea of what do we learn from 
literature and narratives and understanding ourselves through the eyes of other people, we can learn an awful lot. We can we can learn about our experience. We can learn how other people have navigated those twists and turns, how people have come through adversity, how people have come to understand what different things mean. And that can be absolutely crucial. It can be enlightening. It can relieve anxiety. It can make us feel not isolated. But at the same time, we also have to remember that everybody is different and that we might not necessarily have the same feelings as other people. And that's one thing also that when we're training people to work on our support services, you know, sometimes we have people who have lived experience, who have had an eating disorder themselves. And somebody might ask, well, have you had an eating disorder? And we never answer that question because the minute you answer it, it becomes about you and not about the person. And also, if you say you have had an eating disorder, then it becomes about, well, what did you do and what worked for you and what is that like? And if you say you haven't had an eating disorder, then it's like, well, you couldn't possibly understand what it's like for me. Again, it's about taking up that position of not knowing, of it's not about me, it's about you. And I think that that is a really important distinction to make when we're thinking about how do we support people and how do we work with people. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. Um, and so many ideas about balance and about relationality that I'm I'm really keen to, to pick up on. Our next guest on today's episode written on the body, eating disorders and narrative is Dr. Elizabeth Barrett. Elizabeth is a consultant in child and adolescent liaison psychiatry, psychological medicine in Children's University Hospital Temple Street and associate professor of psychiatry at University College Dublin. Elizabeth has a clinical and research interest in the interface between medical and psychiatric comorbidity, eating disorders, somatic symptoms in medicine, anxiety, neuropsychiatry and tic disorders. She's a past member of the Eating Disorder Model of Care Group and a member of the Paediatric Clinical Advisory Group. Elizabeth holds a master's in medical education and is involved with undergraduate and postgraduate teaching and training at UCD, RCPI, Trinity College Dublin and other fora. Currently, Elizabeth is a trainer for paediatric and psychiatry trainees and collaborates with international research examining European training and trainee burnout and vulnerability and relating to COVID-19 and the impact on mental health. Elizabeth is an accredited Ballant lead and leads national interdisciplinary clinician groups and is the clinical lead for Schwartz Rounds at Temple Street Hospital. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Claire. It's so lovely to be here today. And I think it's fantastic to bring together a group of professionals to think about patient voice and how we can include it in teaching and training and everyday clinical practice. I was thinking about this from a very practical perspective. I got involved with uh, Dr. Melissa Dixon in developing mind reading way back in 2012. I was doing a fellowship at Great Ormond Street and my fellowship was in eating disorders and I was working at Great Ormond Street and the Royal Free And it was pretty stressful as a trainee to be in a kind of a tier four specialist eating disorder service. All the young people in the service were, you know, when I started, I was getting to know people uh, and it was a bit overwhelming. And I joined a writing group really as a hobby and as a way to process feelings almost. And I just, as it happened, it was a a writing group around the corner from the hospital. And sure, sure enough, it was full of interdisciplinary professionals who worked in lots of different areas but we're all working, you know, in, in related fields, or at least we discovered that there were lots of commonalities between our work as the group went on, which was fantastic. So I became really interested in how doctors can use writing as a way of reflecting about the emotional impact of the work. 
and that's something so after my fellowship I came I came obviously home to Ireland to work in a pediatric hospital where I specialize in seeing young people who have both physical and mental health difficulties so that covers a whole range of things from you know children with lots and lots of medical conditions but obviously one of the examples of that is young people who who are struggling with an eating disorder who are admitted to the hospital because they're very medically unwell so as Harriet has said, you know, many, many people are managed in the community. The vast majority of people are attending community services. But sometimes when people are very medically ill, they end up being admitted within a pediatric hospital, often for kind of acute medical support and management. And we provide mental health support and often we're teeing people up for the journey that is ahead of them. And um, so I became very interested in how do we support clinicians and networks? Um, and how do we support trainees to gain exposure and experience in the area of, of eating disorders? Um, what's the best way to do that? How do we um, get trainees to think about empathy and vulnerability and understanding the, the position of the patient? And I suppose the other thing is one of the joys of working as a fellow, I was, I suppose, at a re reasonably senior stage in my career and I was going to be there for a year. So at least I had time and longevity. So when I started, it was very overwhelming. I didn't know the patients. But actually, of course, a year later, you've seen people go on a on a long journey, but often people are in recovery or, you know, physically things have moved on for them. Things have moved on from a mental health perspective. And that's a joyful thing as a clinician. But I think a lot of junior doctors, when they're rotating through posts, they're in a post for, you know, six months or a year. They don't have that experience. They don't get to see when things start to improve, when recovery starts to happen. You know, how supports for parents and carers of young people with eating struggles can be really effective and helpful. So it was, I really started to think about how could we scaffold that sort of learning and teaching, you know. So for me, I didn't approach it really from an academic perspective initially. I really approached the idea of medical humanities as a support for me personally as a doctor working in this arena and then thinking about, you know, how can we use it in, how can we use strategies from medical humanities and medical education? And even when I think further back, you know, after medical school, I started training in pediatric medicine and it was all very physically oriented. And I looked after many, many young people who had struggles around food and eating but their struggles were very poorly understood, I think, in the wider medical community because there wasn't a lot of time to reflect and think about the story or the narrative of a patient. The focus was very much on kind of physical well-being through no fault of anyone's. Just services were under pressure, were busy, you know, were trying to focus very much on refeeding um, without perhaps having the opportunity to do more reflective work. And, you know, that as a paediatric trainee, maybe that was very challenging and not very satisfying. Um, and the idea that as a liaison psychiatrist, I'm in this unique position where I work with physicians and paediatricians and networks of people. I mean, there's so many people who work with young people in my hospital when people are really experiencing very significant medical struggles around eating disorders, but also from a mental health perspective. So I work with dietitians sometimes physiotherapists, OTs, SLTs, like a real range of professionals. So there are real opportunities, I think, for narrative and for medical education to, to explore those areas. And I suppose even from that time when I was doing my fellowship, some of those stories have stayed with me because stories are powerful things. And Harriet has said, every story is different and unique. I still remember young people from my fellowship telling me about their experience of eating disorders and how terrifying and scary things were, or perhaps sometimes 
how they used, you know, the eating disorder was actually helpful in some ways in supporting them through other crises in their lives. I still think of those stories. I had a funny experience a few years later. I was back in London at a conference and I was at a local shopping centre around the corner from the hospital and a young person came up and tapped me on the shoulder and I didn't recognise her, you know. She had grown at least a foot since I had last seen her. She was now, you know, a late age adolescent in her late teens and she said hello and she told me who she was and I remembered her immediately. But in my head, she was still this 12-year-old girl that I had met you know, on an eating disorder ward. And now she was in a really different place in her life. So stories stay with us, but of course they have to change over time. And for some, you know, clinicians, I think stories can be very meaningful. Now everyone's different, right? So uh, narrative is a great way to moderate learning for people who are interested in narrative. Not everyone is interested in stories and narrative. But, you know, I think as humans, we're generally interested in telling stories and sharing stories. So I think there's a real opportunity to do that. So sometimes, um, you know, composite narratives of patients might be an example of that. So when you read a textbook, there might be descriptions. As Harriet said, it's kind of sometimes a a one size fits all sort of overarching description, but then finding nuances within that with patients. But I do think there are other ways that stories stay with us. So sometimes they allow us to, you know, empathize, but they also allow us to, you know, think about projection and transference and some of the concepts that Harriet has mentioned. And what is it that's, you know, making things difficult in the room? Is it me projecting something or is it the young person projecting something or is it the parent? Or is it a very tangled mess of all of those things that's very hard to separate out? in a way that's, you know, constructed as therapeutic. And I suppose reading stories and thinking about um, close reading and exploring different aspects and perspectives, I think think for trainees and for interdisciplinary professionals might be a really great way to model that because it's sometimes very hard to do the learning in the room, you know, and sometimes very hard in busy clinical jobs to find uh, ways to do that. And I suppose sometimes young people have lots of ideas about that themselves. They'll tell you where professionals are getting things wrong and they're not understanding and why why things aren't the way they should be. Um, I mean, I was joking yesterday, I had a a young person who told me about a play I'd never read. We were talking about, she's a reader. So when I meet a young person who's a reader, sometimes we can share some stories. So we were talking about a book called Turtles All the Way Down. And there's a young person in the book who has um, anxiety and OCD, it's very well described. And she was able to tell me what parts of this person's life she was able to relate to and what parts she didn't. And then she recommended a book to me. She said, have you read Dear Evan Hansen? And I said, no. And she said, you should read that. You know, it's great, great play, she said. And of course, I haven't read it since yesterday, but how wonderful that we were having a discussion about fictional characters and the things that that fictional character was experiencing that were similar to things in her own life. And sometimes it's it's easier, I suppose, to, to discuss difficult things at one degree of remove, uh, or at least it's perhaps easier for a young person to, to initiate a conversation or bring a conversation in a way like that. And I've had lots of success over the years with children who are interested in reading using um, experiences like that. I have a very, uh, uh, there's a very nice poem by Stephen Dunn, which is, I don't know if anyone knows that it's about a young person. The teacher is asking a group of young people what places, you know, are their special place. And there's silence. Uh, you can imagine a room of adolescents being asked, you know, what's your special place? Where do you like to go? And the teenagers all go very quiet. 
And one boy says it's his car. And he talks about why he loves being in his car. He listens to music. He, he, you know, he feels safe there. He feels relaxed there. And then the other young people start volunteering information. And sometimes I share that poem with young people because actually it reminds the adults in the room that actually it's not always about home being the best place or a hospital being the best place. Sometimes there's a variety of other places where children feel very engaged and valued and special. Um, music is a good example. Um, and I think it's it's good to remind ourselves as professionals, like we're kind of a bit far removed from adolescence sometimes. And we, we forget that adolescence has really, really changed and adolescent pressures have really changed. And those are really good conversations to start the other thing I often use is uh, a lived experience article, um, which was published in the BMJ a few years ago by Rebecca Knight. And it's about a young doctor who has anorexia nervosa herself. And the reason I use it sometimes in teaching, I'm always conscious. I teach fifth year medical students. I teach interdisciplinary professionals in pediatrics and general practice and lots of other settings. So some of the professionals or students will have a lot of exposure to young people with eating disorders. So for example, if you do your psychiatry placement in one of the eating disorder services, but other people will never have met a young person professionally with an eating disorder. I use this lived experience article because it's a young doctor talking about her own experience. And she talks about the bleakness of the experience of having anorexia. She describes at one point that she's asked to give a description of her experience of anorexia. And she says she can give it in one word. For her, it's isolation. And she describes for her what the experience of having anorexia is like. The other helpful thing she does, uh, and it's a very medical thing, you'll probably all laugh, but she also gives some nice explanations of the physical sequelae of her eating problems. So I always feel when I use it in a teaching session, it gives the students a memorable story to hook the physical symptoms onto. So that if they're in an emergency department or a CAMS clinic in you know, a year or two's time, that that story will stay with them. They'll remember you know, the physical sequelae or they'll remember where to get the information when they're meeting a patient or a family. And there are some really, really good tools, as, as Harriet well knows, as part of the model of care for eating disorders, a lot of good tools and strategies were identified. But of course, a junior doctor, you know, in an emergency department or a GP who doesn't see very many people with eating disorders, they may not have recently come across those things. So sometimes it's good to have a little prompt. You know, I remember that story. And one of the things that they talked about was the model of care or junior Mars plan or, you know, thinking about a few linked things that might support professionals. So I suppose from that perspective, I've always been really keen to use narrative. And, and I'm glad to hear Emily is going to talk a little bit about bibliotherapy, because I think lots of clinicians use bibliotherapy in a very informal way. I think thinking about it in a more formal way might be helpful. But I, I absolutely what Harriet has said about the pros and cons and pitfalls of the process, I think, are really important. For me, over the years, a few things I was thinking about, a few books I've read over the years where I thought, oh, isn't that so interesting? I've learned something. The Wonder by Emma Donoghue, representation of the fasting girls, girls in the you know 1850s and 60s who weren't able to eat and were considered to be had to have mystical powers. Uh, and again, in that book, a lot of physical sequelae of uh, malnutrition are, are explored and um, some stressors. Now, again, you know, it, the story comes to a very rapid resolution where things are fixed very quickly, which isn't sort of a typical pattern necessarily, but there are lots of things in this fictional representation of an eating struggle that are thought-provoking and interesting and good to think about. 
Then I, I remember Weightless by Sarah Bannon. I don't know if anyone has read that, but it's a really interesting read. It's written in the third person plural and it's about a young person who's experiencing bullying um, and has several adverse experiences uh, combined with eating struggles and mood difficulties. Certainly inspired by real life events, it's very thought provoking about adolescent life. And the role of food and nutrition in terms of managing stress and distress and control over your environment. So that's a very thought provoking one. And then interestingly, a teenager once told me about how I live now. I think it's because it's now been made into a movie with Saoirse Ronan. The book is, again, it's a post-apocalyptic kind of a scenario with a young person who has longstanding eating struggles. And many, many life things happen for the adolescent um, but she certainly learns to manage food and nutrition in a different way. So they're all just thought provoking um, things that, you know, sometimes people have read, sometimes they haven't. But I think they can inspire conversation and certainly debate about what parts of, of these representations are helpful or unhelpful. I don't know that they're necessarily solutions to anything, but I think they're a good starting points sometimes for conversation. So I guess my final thoughts really are that um, teams working with young people with eating disorders can be under immense pressure and often experience what we call splitting, you know, where um, people may be, you know, allied, where everyone's trying to be allied together against the eating problem. But sometimes we end up splitting into taking positions on other aspects of illness or family life, or sometimes we end up down rabbit holes about things and things can get quite stuck. And I do think if we can bring it back to narrative and the patient story, that's really, really powerful. And sometimes if we can use other narratives to remind ourselves that actually, you know, these cases are often complicated. Young people don't come to us, as Harriet says, in the perfect box, having the typical presentation. Most young people are presenting with a range of different difficulties that they're experiencing and managing in their lives. So I think the power of narrative can be really helpful on teams in terms of managing compassion fatigue finding compassion in sometimes challenging situations. So I hope um, after I hear Emily and Aoife's talk, I'm going to have lots more ammunition, lots more tools in the armory to use in my clinical practice. So thanks again. It's a delight to be here today, folks. Brilliant, Liz. That was so thought-provoking. Thank you. I was listening to Dear Evan Hansen yesterday. I love it. It's one of my favourite musicals. Absolutely, really visceral. And so much about the stories that we tell about ourselves so next on Written on the Body, Eating Disorders and Narrative, I'm joined by Emily Trashanko, a writer, researcher, blogger and recovery coach with particular interests in eating disorders, consciousness and the psychological effects of reading narrative. She also runs a writing programme for humanities graduates and postdocs at Oxford University. We're delighted to have Emily with us today. Um, Emily, welcome. Thank you very much, Claire. It's lovely to be here. To start with a little bit of background to my current interest in the intersection of eating disorders and reading of literature, narrative fiction, I'm, I'm good with all those terms. I studied French and German at undergrad, then went on to a, a PhD in German literature, focusing on Kafka. And quite soon in the, well, actually before I even started the PhD, although after I'd got funding to do a completely different project, I realised that the cognitive questions were really the most interesting ones to me, um, specifically a kind of general but very to me intriguing question what makes Kafka's writing so weird and wonderful that is a cognitive question in the sense that it's a question about about effects about responses about you know what Kafka's writing makes people feel 
And I ended up investigating that primarily with respect to mental imagery and emotional responses and constructed a kind of theoretical framework based around the concept of um, what I call cognitive realism. So basically the alignment or not between cognition as it's represented in texts and as it actually operates in the reader's minds. And that gives you a quite straightforward way of connecting what we know about human minds and bodies with uh, analysis of textual features. So I was able to answer, at least to my partial satisfaction, that question about um, you know what makes Kafka's writing great. In the meantime, I was finally getting on with recovering from anorexia. And towards the end of my recovery, or at least towards the end of the weight gain phase of it, uh, I started writing a, a blog for the US website, Psychology Today. Um, like many eating disorder blogs, it, it started off as pretty much, you know, just charting my personal experience of, of illness and recovery. But gradually started to incorporate more more triangulation between the personal experience and uh, what I was starting to learn about the science of eating disorders. And then increasingly, as it became more popular and readers would respond to things, also adding in those second person perspectives, if you like. And I gradually realised that even though I was still cramming it into weekends and, and evenings, it was amongst the most important things that I was doing. And also it had obvious links to my research. That should have probably been obvious from the fact that I called the blog A Hunger Artist, which is a title borrowed from uh, one of Kafka's stories, a story about a man who fasts for other people's entertainment. But somehow it never quite occurred to me to join the dots properly in terms of my research practice. Once it did occur to me, I then uh, wrote a theoretical paper, which was again Kafka-focused, looking at that particular story, starting to map out how that existing framework of cognitive realism could be used to think about um, how illness and health uh, interact with uh, the reading process, with identifiable features of texts. In part, I suppose, what I was really trying to do at that point was, was make sense of how I could systematically engage with these questions as a researcher who, to be honest, was only doing this stuff because of my own personal history and, and investments in it. So, you know, how to how to navigate those uh, those personal intellectual commitments and put them in a meaningful way into the into the research practice was kind of tricky, but interesting. So that started to bring my research, I guess, somewhere into the middle ground between cognitive literary studies and the medical or health humanities. And then having written that that sort of first theoretical intervention, it seemed important, as with all the Kafka work that I'd done already, and not to stop at the theorising stage, but to try and find some stuff out empirically. And that includes not stopping with my own experience and I would say, you know, sort of nuancing some of the points that Harriet was making, you know, acknowledging that yes, there's always individual variation, but but all that sits on a on a foundation of stuff that can actually be generalised about. Um, and I would say that epistemic progress tends to depend on acknowledging both of those uh, of those factors. So I set up a partnership with Beat, the UK eating disorders charity. We designed a survey to ask people various things about the connections between their reading habits and their mental health with a focus on eating disorders um, and because of where we advertise the vast majority of people um, did have personal experience either present or past of an eating disorder of one kind or another. I was absolutely amazed by how many responses we got. I was expecting like uh, a couple of hundred at most. Um, it was quite a long involved survey. Uh, in the end, we had nearly 900 people take the survey, which I think in itself speaks to the fact that people find this kind of thing interesting and important. And a lot of them took took a lot of time clearly to to elaborate on the reasons for their forced choice answers in the in the free response uh, boxes. 
So we had yeah, a huge sample size and also uh, a really clear and to me quite unexpected finding that came out. So one of the main sequences of questions was comparing responses to the kind of fiction that you most like to read. So give them a choice of genres, everything from erotic to literary fiction, whatever. And then eating disorder fiction, on the other hand. So uh, fiction, which people also were clearly interpreting as in including memoir that includes that features a, a protagonist, for example, who has an eating disorder or where eating disorders are stigmatized in some some other way. So, yeah, we asked people a series of questions about how uh, reading these two types of texts uh, tended to affect them on four main dimensions, mood, self-esteem, how you feel about your body and your diet and exercise habits. And really almost universally and often quite uh, strongly in terms of reported kind of effect size, people reported that reading stuff about eating disorders made them uh, worse um, on all those dimensions, um, as I say, with moderate to severe uh, negative effects reported, uh, whereas for eating uh, for fiction about entirely other things, uh, the picture was much more neutral with particularly for the mood dimension a much more positive picture emerging. So as I say, I was I was really surprised by that because I guess I had sort of swallowed the easy line that, well, reading about stuff that's similar to a problem that you're going through should help you get through it. And that may in some cases be true. Of course, this is also only self-report data. And in, in quite a few cases, it was clear that people were referring back to reading experiences that were quite some time in the past, sometimes years ago. So, you know, those are all the caveats of, of self-report research, of course. But it was it was nonetheless a really clear picture that if you if you don't want to subject yourself to the risk of, of, of those negative effects, then just stay clear of stuff that deals with eating disorders. Um, and this this directly contradicts the main existing theory of creative bibliotherapy, which is basically um, founded on that similarity principle that, you know, you find someone doing the same thing. You have the both the learning experience borrowed from them and also the cathartic effect of, you know, going through the, the journey that they go through. So, so yeah, that was uh, the main finding from, from that study. Two other factors that I would like to draw out. One, the I think we had about a dozen people or so um, spontaneously mention that they would often seek out such books deliberately to make themselves worse, you know, for the purposes of self-triggering, which it never occurred, occurred to me that people would do, but kind of makes sense once you think about it, given the other, other ways in which people seek out that type of effect. Also, more more generally, I would say it was just really striking throughout so many of the, the the free response elaborations, just how strong the interpretive filter is that an eating disorder uh, imposes on. Well, we know it, it imposes it on, on the entire world, so it shouldn't be a surprise. But just to hear people talk so explicitly about the way in which the eating disorder just filters out everything that doesn't fit with that mindset just you know enhances the stuff that does fit gets rid of everything else you know over and over people reporting that yeah sure there was discussion in the books about how you know how this wrecked relationships how unpleasant it was in some ways how people died as a result but oh no all the eating disorder really focuses on and zooms in on is you know the power the the purity the specialness the control all those great things that uh, that uh, are validated in the kind of eating disorder mythology. So, so yeah, that interpretive filter and how universally strong it was was uh, a really interesting thing to to learn more about.
so that was the the first bit of empirical work that I've done. Um, and the other I'd like to tell you a little bit about was a few years later in collaboration with a Spanish PhD student, Rocio Riestra Camacho. She had a really cool idea to use the genre, which I'd never even heard of before, called young adult sports fiction. One of the books that we used, for example, the the young female protagonist had a boyfriend who um, was planning to run a marathon. Then he died and she decided that she would run the marathon in his memory. So this type of thing, you can I, th I think it's a really clever choice for an exploration of sort of eating disorder related stuff um, when it comes to reading, because clearly body food exercise stuff is thematized, but it's also not in that pathological realm that uh, an eating disorder memoir or something might be. So she had participants who were a non-clinical population read two novels, by, both by Miranda Keneally, and one, the experimental group was given the novels together with a specially constructed reading guide in the form of little pop-ups in the margins, uh, which were intended to direct readers' attention towards aspects of the books that could be, um, if you like, prophylactic or positively, you know, draw out the positives in terms of the, uh, the readers' engagements with body and food and stuff, like point out when the protagonist says, no, get your own fries when her boyfriend says, do you want to share some? Because, you know, it helps go against the, the gendered sense that uh, women should only share other people's food or whatever. So bringing out those little things. And then the control group just read the text as published. The, the only significant difference between groups that she found was in terms of not the standardised questionnaire scores, which uh, were... So the, the questionnaire that we used was the EAT26, which uh, measures vulnerability to eating disorders, but on the specially constructed uh, questionnaire that she'd created uh, to align with the, the reading guide pop-ups, she found a, a significant difference in um, amount of espousal of uh, gender stereotypes when it comes to body-related matters with improvement in the experimental group and not in the, in the control group. So that's kind of a nice finding. Also, trend level suggestions that there might be going, something going on in in the direction of uh, improvement in the experimental conditions. So, with reading guide, and also not just as she hypothesised, kind of flatlining in the control group, so no effect, but actually in the direction of worsening with when you don't have the the reading guide as a support. So, even in that case, with non-clinical population and not a book about eating disorders, you know, the, the potential for damaging things to, to be happening is, is suggested there. He also interviewed the participants after their reading experience and around half of the people that she interviewed mentioned that the texts reading the novels had prompted them to, to exercise or to consider, seriously consider doing so, which was not something that we were aiming to achieve, but was kind of interesting finding. Um, another thing that was more sort of obviously positive is that some participants only in the experimental group again reported that they'd got a more uh, relaxed attitude towards eating and exercising than they'd had previously which was one of the aims of the reading guides um, and as I say that didn't happen in the control group so again really gives gives more uh, weight to this idea that that guiding the interpretive process in the ways that you want it to go is it really matters when you're talking about engagement with complex textual materials like this. And finally, we've, we've got the start of, you know, some bits of empirical evidence that suggests measurable 
tangible stuff is coming up here. Um, I've just got ethics clearance now to start a, a third study, which will be investigating a book which I myself have written about anorexia and recovery. My aim has been to forestall as strongly as possible all the damaging things that people might want to do with this book. And the point is pre-publication to see whether I've been successful in this. I have given myself a, a, a quantitative threshold below which, as one of the ethics reviewers put it, it's going to be binned. But I'm hoping that that won't happen and there'll be some, you know, grey area where maybe some edits are required, but it can uh, still go out into the world, not just as yet another memoir that actually no one needs and that was written for purposes that were not clear and is quite likely to do more harm than good. But that's the kind of the last thing that I want to, to, to be generating. Um, but yes, this will be compared against a control text, actually a book written by my mother, uh, which is structurally similar in some ways, but has nothing to do with eating disorders. Um, and this will be with uh, people currently self-reporting as uh, suffering from a restricted eating disorder. So yeah, more scope for actually finding some stuff out, I hope. I'd be happy to talk more about existing research around all these areas, um, also about cognitive realism and what I think about how reading fits into, you know, the, what should be the main focus of eating disorder treatment and prevention, because I don't think reading is really at the centre. But yeah, we can come on to that in the Q&A. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Emily. Can I ask what the book is called? It's called The Hungry Anorexic. Hungry Anorexic. Brilliant. I figured we should we should get that in. I, I look forward to hearing more about that. It's really interesting to hear that your work has suggested that things that, that reading isn't the kind of the relationship between narrative and, and eating disorders is not what you would necessarily expect it to be or sort of intuitively expect it to be. So loads to pick up on there. Um, thank you so much. So our last speaker on this episode written on the body, eating disorders and narrative is Aoife Murray. Aoife is Programme and Events Manager at Children's Books Ireland and has been since 2011. Prior to this, she worked in public relations and holds an MPhil in popular literature from Trinity College Dublin. Children's Books Ireland's mission is every child is a reader. Through their many activities and events, they aim to engage young people with books, foster a greater understanding of the importance of books for young people and act as a core resource for those with an interest in books for children in Ireland. So we're delighted to have Aoife here to talk to us today. Aoife, welcome. Thanks again for having me. I'm really glad to be here today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Children's Books Ireland and what we do um, and where we have different resources and projects that might be of interest to your to your listeners um, and maybe further afield. We are the National Organisation for Children's Books. Um, it's a small but very busy organisation. You'll see how busy we are in a little while when I get to talk about our projects. Um, we have a, a fairly wide remit. Um, when we talk about children, we're talking about zero to 18 years. Um, so everything we do Near almost everything we do will run the gambit um, between uh, picture books the whole way up to young adult or YA novels. Um, we, our core funder is the Arts Council of Ireland and we're also funded by membership and we work with lots of corporate and other partners for individual projects. Um, like you said, Claire, um, our mission is Every Child a Reader, which we're really proud of and think um, sort of really cements exactly what we're trying to do um, as clearly as possible. So there's a few projects we work on that are of most interest, but to kind of give you an idea of how broad our remit is and the different things we do, I'm going to kind of run through a few others first with a little bit of detail. Um, so we run um, and facilitate events for children, zero to 18, as I said, also events for adults. Um, I suppose we use that, that phrase gatekeepers, uh, whether you consider that a positive or a negative, a negative term. So booksellers, librarians, parents, publishers, et cetera, et cetera, um, and also events for creatives themselves, the authors and illustrators. 
we offer professional development for those people, for children's authors, illustrators, storytellers. Um, at the moment with COVID, we're trying our best to sort of act as a fulcrum for a social element, a social outlet for children's authors and illustrators. We've been holding um, an art, a children's artist coffee morning every third week uh, since July. I don't think we realise how long they've been running on for. Um, but we uh, try our best to see where there are professional development gaps for those people and try and address them. Um, we provide printed and online resources for parents, schools, librarians, for children themselves. I'll get to that a little bit later on. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, we publish three times a year a magazine called Inish, which is a really high quality production with in-depth features, interviews and reviews of new books for children. Um, I suppose a key element of what we are focused on and interested in is parity of esteem for children's books. Um, so Inish um, as a magazine feeds into that. Another project of ours that addresses the parity of esteem issue um, is celebrating the quality of Irish children's books. So a big project every year is our Book of the Year Awards. They're currently called the KPMG Children's Books Ireland Awards. They're our partner on that and they um, mark excellent excellence in Irish children's books um, and one of the things we're really proud of that goes alongside our awards process is a shadowing scheme which is really really key in highlighting the voice of the child when it comes to books that are published for them and um, I suppose one thing when we talk about children not so much young adults teenagers and young adults but for children specifically um, when you're reaching out to young to children of a certain age you have to remember that they're they don't necessarily have the purchasing power and those gatekeepers are always in the way um so having a shadowing scheme for an awards system that's decided by adults is really beneficial for us and i think beneficial for the voice of the child generally when it comes to their opinions on books and the quality of books available to them and we run an annual international conference i shouldn't really say it's annual because we were scuppered last year with covid and probably will be again this year um, but generally we run an annual international conference um, which is a huge highlight on our calendar. It's a conference for adults. Um, it attracts everyone involved in the Irish children's books community and, and people from abroad. And we program uh, Irish speakers and speakers internationally, creatives, publishers, booksellers, anyone really related with children's books who has something really interesting and innovative to say about children's books. Um, another major part of what we do is advocacy. So we are the administrator partner on the Laureate Nano project, which is an Arts Council initiative which honours an artist of exceptional talent and commitment. So the current laureate Nanoga is Ani Neeklin, who's an Irish language author. Um, and her work is around championing and celebrating literature for children and young people and inspiring the next generation of writers. Um, so the Laureate Nanoga project is a really high profile one for us and one we're extremely proud of. Um, and really, we, we believe hammers home the importance of books for young people and especially in uh, Anya's term, uh, the importance of quality Irish language books for young children. For young people, excuse me. Um, and we also have an international element to what we do, which is attending the Bologna Children's Book Fair in Italy every year. Again, you know what I'm going to say, who's covered by COVID the last couple of years. But generally, we're there um, championing, the, uh, championing the Irish element um, in Bologna. Um, to us, to whoever will listen to us from across the world. And another major part of what we do that has been formalised a bit more structurally lately is book gifting. 
um, not every child in Ireland has comes from a home where there are lots of books. Not many children come from homes where there are any books. Um, so our book gifting um, schemes with various partners, including corporate partners, is about reaching out to schools um, around the country where there mightn't be a culture of reading or there might be a culture of reading, but no access to actual books. Um, so our book gifting projects um, try and empower those schools and those children um, and bring books into their lives. Books that they're really going to enjoy, not something that they feel is something they have to read for school. And that's something else I should say is when we say every child a reader, we don't mind what they're reading. <laughs> it's not a prescriptive um, didactic approach to reading. It's really about um, reading for pleasure. Just picking up a book. It doesn't matter what book, as long as it speaks to you and you enjoy doing it. Um, so some of the projects specifically I'd like to go into a bit more detail on that I think would be are of relevance to this discussion um, I'm going to talk about now. So the first one is Bold Girls. Um, this was a project we did in 2018 to celebrate the centenary of women's suffrage in Ireland. Um, the idea was to put together a project that celebrates strong, confident, intelligent, brave women and girls in children's books, giving them much needed visibility alongside their male counterparts, I suppose. Uh, yeah, a big example of this is some, someone, a character like Hermione Granger in Harry Potter, who I don't know if anyone has noticed, but she's the one who does all the work <laughs> and all the thinking, but it's Harry who gets a lot of the credit. Um, so we kind of wanted to look at books and highlight those books that do exist that celebrate strong um, girl and women characters. So at the core of that project was a reading guide, an A5 printed, very attractive booklet um, that contained short reviews of books um, where girls and women are doing things that are interesting. Um, we also um, shared that project. Uh, we, had a, we had some um, academic resources and also resources for teachers to use in the classroom. Um, so that was uh, something we were really, really proud of and really happy to get the opportunity to work on um, in 2018. We partnered with Dublin UNESCO City of Literature and we partnered with uh, KPMG, who are a great partner for us, Trinity College Dublin, Dublin City University um, and the National Women's Council of Ireland are also um, advisory on that. Um, so those resources still exist on our website www.childrensbooksireland.ie and they are the type of resources that people return to again and again. Potentially in a couple of years time it might need a bit of an update because it's banned um, the spectrum from classics um, the whole way up to very recently published books. So since 2018, many, many uh, excellent books about uh, girls and women doing interesting things have been published. Another ongoing thing I wanted to talk about was um, our reading lists on our website, um, most especially Mind Yourself. So every year, Children's Books Ireland, one of our printed resources that I mentioned briefly earlier is a printed reading guide. And we produce these every year and they're launched um, September, October time. They're generally not themed. They're generally um, a look at the best children's books published in the previous year, divided up by age groups. You can uh, flick through it and find the age group of the for the young reader in your life. And it'll contain short reviews of the best books published in the previous year for those different age groups. Last year, it being a year like no other, um, 2020, um, we decided to publish a themed version this time. So we called it Mind Yourself and we described it as a first aid kit for worries, sadness, loneliness, anxiety and any number of feelings that a young reader might want to explore. Um, and we hope that for young readers there was relief and solace in seeing their lives reflected on the page. And something Emily mentioned earlier and also um, Elizabeth mentioned um, around finding reflections of your reality in books really kind of resonated with me. Um, Liz, you mentioned this idea of isolation being a key um, 
describing word when it comes to living with an eating disorder. And that's one of the areas that we included in the Mind Yourself Reading Guide. And I suppose, Emily, when you said that a lot of respondents to your survey reported that when they're reading specifically about eating disorders, that mightn't be the most helpful thing for them. But I wonder if they approached it from the idea of isolation and read a story about a person who's experiencing isolation in some other context, um, whether that might be a more helpful tool in in recovery and in um, in empathizing because we know reading for pleasure has a huge role in um, making us empathetic and as you said Liz stories are powerful incredibly powerful so some of the topics we included in the mind yourself guide were understanding feelings and emotions I suppose and again these are books from from the very 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 youngest picture books for the very youngest readers the whole way up to young adults and um, worry stress and anxiety fears and phobias grief and loss sadness low mood and depression relationship with self lifelong conditions, body image, well-being, body confidence, grief, inclusivity and representation. So all sorts of topics that we know there's great books out there about, maybe tangentially, maybe specifically. And we know that a young person can pick this up, um, flick to the section that's appropriate for their age group and find something that is going to speak to them and help them through and be a difficult time they're going through. Um, supporting the Mind Yourself Reading Guide or many, many other reading lists available on our website, again, childrensbooksireland.ie and um, lots of very specifically themed reading lists. Um, a few off the top of my head, Overco Overcoming Fears and Positive First Experiences are ones that people might find especially useful, but there's all sorts there from funny books to sports books to any number of things that we know young readers might pick up. Our, our entire aim is that a young person will pick it up try something, maybe try a new book and find something they really, really love and something that hooks them into a lifetime of reading because we feel that having a habit of reading in your life, I think pe people generally know there's huge positive outcomes in terms of uh, life choices and chances and opportunities, but we think there's a huge benefit in terms of mental um, resilience as well. Another project um, and one we absolutely love and have pivoted to digital, <laughs> that old phrase pivoting to digital has become so huge the past couple of years, um, is the Children's Books Ireland Book Clinic. And you'd be glad to hear that's the last project I want to talk about today because I know it's a lot of information. Um, so the book clinic began in 2012 um, and how it started was we found that we were meeting a lot of teachers and meeting a lot of young people, students, children together in the classroom. We weren't necessarily interacting with individual children and we were finding it difficult to reach out to families and we wondered what we could do to kind of address that. So we come up with this idea of the book clinic. So we have a, a team of book doctors. Uh, some of them are booksellers, some are authors themselves, some are librarians, some are researchers, some of them have um, PhDs in children's books. Very knowledgeable, well-read, extensively read um, across the spectrum. Um, so we put together a panel of book doctors. They, they show up at a book clinic, they're wearing a white coat. They sit down um, and they have a consultation with the child for 10 or 15 minutes. They talk about if the book of the child is a reader, books they've liked, books they haven't liked can be a more helpful um, indication. If they're not a reader, sports they like, stuff they like to look at online, whatever it might be, things that interest them, their passions. Um, and the book doctor will write up a prescription for book, a book or books that they know the child is going to love. Um, the book prescription comes in a reading passport. The idea is the child takes this printed passport with them and there's lots of activities that will encourage them to continue their relationship with books and maybe forge a relationship with their local librarian or independent bookseller. Um, 
yes, again, you know what I'm going to say, COVID came along. Um, so we've had to make some changes to our book clinic, which has been absolutely for the better um, as much as we can in the past couple of years. Obviously, we'd love to be in real life, but it's turned out better than we thought it could be digitally. And we moved a lot of our clinics onto Zoom. Um, so children can click on a Zoom link with their, their parent or guardian in the room and chat to the book doctor and again get that individual um, book prescription that's written just for them. Um, again this goes back to the voice of the child as well. At the book clinic it's really important that we find out what it is that the child themselves actually really enjoys reading not what they think their teacher wants them to read or what their granny buys for them who they think they're going to enjoy but really finding something that speaks to them, be it a graphic novel, be it um, something that their parent might think initially from the outset, potentially is a little bit grown up for them. Um, but we want to find that one book again that's going to continue them on, on a lifetime of reading. Um, I should say the book clinics are always free of charge. We have um, uh, a drive and an interest in, in being inclusive and being available to all. Hence, um, the lack of charge for those, and then also we're um, more recently working with um, partners to provide a training for our book doctors in order to make those book clinics as, as inclusive as possible. So we've worked with the National Council for Blind, the Blind of Ireland, um, with Dyslexia Ireland, with As I Am, which is the charity for autism, and we're. To, uh, hoping now over the next couple of months to roll out book clinics where we can invite absolutely anybody along and know that the experience of the book clinic is going to be as positive for every child as, as it can be. Um, we're extremely active on social media and people can find us on Instagram, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, we're always talking about our projects and always interested to work with new people and find out new ways of reaching more young readers. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Aoife. I just, I wanted to, to, to mention CBI were part of Mind Reading in 2017 out in the Lexicon in Dunleary. Um, and there was huge, huge interest in, in all of your many projects and in, in, the, in, the, in the event that you did there. So we're really delighted to have, to have CBI involved today. I think it's, it's so important, as you say, the, the, the kind of the, the non-specific pleasure of reading that non-directed and, and finding something that, finding what works, finding and fostering that kind of independent reading spirit. I was really interested in your idea of gatekeepers as well. Of course, not something necessarily that, that we think about in, in, in questions of accessibility and, and, and access to, to narrative, but that purchasing power and what you're allowed to read. So even again, that kind of sense of control and being able to manage what you what you interact with and what you what you read. So thank you so much. That was great. So as the last, as the final part of the, the episode, I'm going to open up to all the panelists, we're going to have a, a brief kind of Q&A, just bringing together some of the ideas that have emerged. And what I think is really interesting from today's um, presentations is the, the range of ways in which narrative can be important, right? So in in treatment or in, in, in learning about the patient experience of ED and, and how that's kind of unexpectedly, perhaps, um, how that can kind of have unexpected consequences, as both, both Harriet and, and Emily pointed out, and also the use of these kinds of narratives, of case histories, of individual, of patient voice narratives, of composite narratives, of reflection in clinical practice, in education and in reflection. So really wildly different 
um, wild, wildly different approaches and uses, and then also the kind of more general um, relationality of reading that we see with 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 your projects um, in CBI, Aoife. So just a, a huge sense of the range of kinds of narrative that come into play here, which is which is I think really fascinating. One of the things that I wanted to pick up on that really arose, I think, in all of the presentations was the balance between directing and guiding readership and the, the kind of the interpretation guides, both for both for clinicians and, and um, support providers, Harriet and, and Liz, and for for um, for patients or, or people who've who've recovered from or who are recovering from eating disorders. Emily, and you mentioned the same thing, Aoife. Um, how do you how do you how do you manage that balance between allowing readers to find their way through a text and also directing their directing their attention to what's important? How do we decide what's important and who gets to make that decision? So I think a question of power um, in some in some respects. Um, Emily, I might start with you. What you say about power is an interesting way to go, I think. And if, if you're if you're designing experiments to uh, to try to push people's uh, interpretive activity in one way or another then you know as an experimenter you have a clear remit to to do what you've decided to do in order to draw causal inferences and you know the reading guide it seems is one potentially quite effective way of demonstrably nudging people's interpretive responses in one direction rather than the other um, but yeah, what do you do when you're out in, in the real world not being uh, held by the hand by an experimenter? I think for me, it probably comes down to, and this this applies right across the the broad sweep of, of genres that um, involve text, everything from, you know, stuff that you read on Facebook to Dickens novels and everything in between. It's probably something about just learning to read critically. Some of the principles in, involved in academic literary study, for example, narrative perspective seem likely to be relevant here. You know, what kind of perspective is uh, a story being narrated from or focalised through? How can identifying that perspective give you a way of not necessarily taking at face value everything that that uh, narratorial figure is, is conveying, not necessarily, you know, uh, assuming that their value judgments about things are valid. Um, another one might be use of metaphorical language. I mean, the, the, the webs of uh, metaphorical association that get built up around all aspects of eating disordered experience are really, are really powerful ways of both sustaining the disorder and then breaking into it as behaviours start to change. And, you know, drawing people's attention to what metaphor is doing and um, what it can do if you flip it on its head or, you know, demolish it in some way. I think those those type of uh, tools that you might equip people with, again, perhaps in in the context of the amazing work that, that you feel your charity is doing, giving people this type of tool really early on so they can start to, you know, as with deconstructing photoshopped images of models or whatever, allowing them to, to sort of understand better the, the ways in which these texts are constructed and how to navigate your way through them rather than just being sucked through them in whatever way happens to to come about. I think that's maybe a, a useful avenue to think along. 
Yeah, that's that's really useful and actually sort of broadens out into into one of the questions that I wanted to talk about in terms of using narrative and, and the question that Liz raised very early on, the very practical question of, of what are the things that we can use? What are the things that can be applied in the context of, of medical and clinical education? I think you've given a really useful answer there um, around perspective and, and, as you say, just sort of literacy, um, media literacy and information literacy, which is something that we're kind of increasingly talking talking about, as you say, with with imagery and with news, but we don't always remember to bring that back actually to either to fiction or cultural representation or to individual narratives, sort of self self narrative of, of the kind that, that that Liz and Harriet have, have particularly been talking about. And Aoife, I, I'm I'm really interested in the in the, the the shadowing the shadowing program that you talk about. And I'm I'm curious as to how you would see that rather than sort of telling children what to read, which you, you've been very clear is not what you're interested in. So how do you guide that reading? How do you how do you foster those kind of independent reading dispositions through through your work and picking up on, on what Emily has said there? We I suppose specifically around the book of the year awards, we we are saying these are the eight or ten books that this particular panel thought were excellent. This is who this panel are. They all happen to be adults except for one young reader, a young person. Um, on another year, this panel might have chosen a different list. This isn't the be all and end all. Um, so we we go out to the schools, we tell them this: these are the shortlisted titles. And then we say to them, have a read of them, read of them if you want to, you don't have to read all of them. And we also, um, we talk about guided reading, we also provide um, a junior jury pack, which is a resource pack that the te a teacher or uh, whoever's guiding the reading, whoever the adult is, the gatekeeper can use with the class to um, draw out the different elements different themes of the book addresses we try again for that not to be too didactic I mean it is written by a person <laughs> that person has put together these resources and come from a particular point of view and we try to bear that in mind and um, but again it is about it really is about trying to foster that idea of critical reading in in a young person like it's actually surprising how how little their opinions are gathered and how often they're told this is a book you must read you must like all books like when the book doctor meets a child and says you didn't like that book you didn't like black beauty that's grand like did you did you read much of it and the child says yeah i read the whole thing because i thought i should no next time maybe read 10 pages if you don't like it put it aside that it by itself is a really um empowering and almost shocking thing for a child to learn um so again we try to bear that in mind that we are providing and showcasing excellence without being especially prescriptive or didactic in it yeah and that that really allows children to develop those critical faculties themselves and to maybe kind of to emerge to to emerge as readers who are able to to say well what's going on in this text why is it affecting me in this way what do i see in it that's useful what's not useful to me what's potentially harmful um, which I think is is really useful. And of course, one of the things that we've been talking about today as well as, as Harriet was pointing out, um, eating disorders affect um affect populations across the board. Um one of one of the areas that it's that it's that it's really important to talk about is children and adolescents with eating disorders and, and Liz's work speaks to that. And so how, when we're talking about narrative, if we're talking about narrative, either either personal or fictional or composite, how do you how does a, an adolescent population or, or a, a, a pediatric population change the dynamic of narratives? What do you? What are the things that we have to consider? And I, I'd really just ask Liz and Harriet there to to come in. 
I was just thinking about the, you know, and we made a very good point that literature is not an, an alternative to evidence-based treatment, obviously. But I think as a point of therapeutic engagement, it can be very helpful. And I was thinking about narrative in the broader sense. So, for example, uh, I was thinking Harriet and I sat on the um, national um, group that was involved in creating the, the national model for eating disorders. But I had met Harriet long before that. She had come to do a trainee presentation for me in about, oh, I don't know, late, maybe 2009 or 2010. I had, you know, been on to body quite saying, you know, trainees are are really struggling to understand eating disorders. They wonder would somebody come and give us the talk. And Naria came and basically told us stories from the frontiers of young people with eating disorders. And it was so powerful. And I remember one psychiatry trainee, she was actually an, an, an adult psychiatrist who said to me afterwards, uh, this was back, you know, before coronavirus and we could go as trainees for a drink at the end of the conference day, you know. And she said to me it had totally changed her perspective you know, that one lecture, I still remember it, it was so powerful. The idea that narrative at the, you know, the right person the right at the right time can be so powerful. And I was so glad when I came back to Ireland and was involved in that model of care to see patient groups and patient representation and experts by experience bringing their voice to the table. It was very powerful and very, for me anyway, as a clinician, it felt very inclusive that it wasn't just clinicians you know, in the echo chamber, sharing stories that there were, uh, you know, experts in the room who were advocating for patients and that that was integral to the programme from very early on. So to me, those two bits are important, you know, the medical education piece and the advocacy piece and using narrative in them. Part of it for me as well, I think we can't ask experts by experience to talk to every student doctor and every student SLT and every student social worker and every student psychologist like firstly it would be I think unbearably difficult to retell stories over and over to um to different groups of clinicians uh, some of whom are really interested and some of whom are required to be there for their university credits right I mean talk about disheartening if, if you you know were there as the, as the expert by experience so I think we have to be creative we have to think about ways that we can integrate patient voice into you know clinical education of all kinds because I think sometimes we I don't know how if Harriet will agree with me sometimes we ask patient advocates to do it they're fantastic like Harriet certainly blew the minds of 40 or 50 trainee psychiatrists which was brilliant and I'm sure had long-term impacts but it's impossible for Harriet to do that for every group. So I don't know, Harriet, do you feel we rely on you guys too much? Do you feel we have to find better ways of doing this? Hey, I've never had that sense, Liz. But what I would say is that what I have found, you know, since the model of care has been put in place, is that a huge part of the work of supporting people has been through the parents and supporting Absolutely. the families. Yeah. And, um, you know, our family support programme, the pillar programme, I'm as you know, as you were talking, I was thinking that is so true to pin information with a story because every evening um, that we do for every point that I make, I have a story to illustrate it, a real story, you know, something that somebody has said to me, an experience that I've had with working with somebody or, you know, what we've heard from people, you know, on the support groups or, you know their experiences and by putting it into a story 
you know, I have like the toast example or the race cancellation example or the, you know, falling into a, a river example. All of these different metaphors, really. Um, you give the family a way of understanding. Um, and just an example of that, I guess, this morning I was we've started this um, post pillar kind of regular support group. And there was a mum who had been faced with a situation with her daughter where her daughter had come to her to tell her something that was really upsetting that she hadn't had her lunch, um, you know, for, for a period of time. And, you know, the mum had the wherewithal in that moment to react in a way that was helpful. And that was, you know, part of being able to do that is having perspective on it. So mm-hmm. being able to have stood back at some stage to try to understand what is going on here in my situation. And I think that narrative and story can really help a person to do that. Yeah. In terms of like referring people to stories, you know, people themselves who have an eating disorder, I'm always really cautious about doing it and kind of leave it up because I never know what's going to be triggering for somebody, you know, what some how somebody might interpret something or read something. But certainly for family, there's definitely, you know, lots of scope for helping families to understand better, to know what to do more by them reading um, stories. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I actually think for me, it's more sometimes young people will bring something that they've read or told you about because so I think that a good example earlier, you know, when we're talking about turtles all the way down now, we mightn't be doing it. We mightn't be talking about it from a narrative perspective. But what we're talking about is the character in it who has anxiety and what bits of her difficulties are similar to some of the bits I have. And that's but you know what? That, there, that is something, as, as Aoife said, about every child a reader. If children come to you and they're interested in reading and they found things that make sense to them or have have caused them to ask questions, I think. And, it, and also assuming the clinician is a reader and knows a little bit about the story, you know, it, that, it, so it's a very, you know, tricky and limited and bi-directional thing. And not everyone is going to be be interested in that. But hey, when it happens, it can be really, really powerful, I think. I think that's a really important point. And the, the, the term that strikes me is maybe resonance rather than relatability. I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, Liz, I was really struck when you mentioned the, the, t- the specific texts that you that, that have been influential or important for you. None of them are narratives of eating disorders. They're all they're, they're, they, they have those those resonances, those emotional kind of touchstones, um, just exactly as Aoife was, was saying, you know, perhaps if isolation is a feature, maybe that's a way of maybe there's a, a text that deals well with isolation or with with alienation that is a way of articulating an element of, 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 of an individual patient experience. And so to think about narrative as resonant, as scaffolding rather than as kind of training, um, I think might be might be useful. And Emily, that seems to me to chime a little bit as well with your research in terms of what is what is useful is not reflective, but is resonant. Um, so maybe that's a distinction that we could that we could kind of think about. Um, and Harriet, I'm, I'm struck, of course, the, the the idea of the family as as always sort of a bridge between the clinical and the community context. And I know you you, you and Liz both mentioned how much treatment takes place in the community. Um, and that brings me to an, another a much sort of broader question: To what extent do we need to think about the kind of 
imagery literacy that we've been talking about as a cultural phenomenon. I mean, you know, we we talked about the literacy around, you know, not assuming that that the images that we see aren't um, aren't doctored, and that is particularly true of bodies. I think, um, you know, representations of of eating disorders in various um, in in various kind of cultural contexts. What is important about that is again, do we need to be teaching those critical reading skills that Emily was talking about just across the board? I would be delighted if that were the answer. Let's just teach everybody literary theory. Um, but I wonder how, how much do we need to think about the the community perception, the public perception, and understanding of of eating disorders and of the body as a sort of a public object? Might be interesting here to bring in bit more about my experience of working with beats because that ended up touching in some quite interesting ways on on issues related to your question it ended up being actually quite problematic because um they decided that my blog contravened their media guidelines for representing eating disorders because it included some images of like before and after uh, recovery and also some body weight numbers which i subsequently removed but that that wasn't considered adequate to to bring it into line with their guidelines. I found this really kind of disheartening because one, as far as I could tell, their guidelines were put together on the basis of uh, pretty sketchy research uh, involving a small number of people. And I mean, almost all the research that I've been aware of them doing, and I think this is a, a problem in the charitable sector in general, uh, is, is highly biased. They're pushing people to basically report stuff that makes their cause seem more important. And that often just means getting people to uh, emphasise the negatives and, you know, the reasons why more money needs to be poured into this. Um, so that, that one of the issues was with the evidence base for, for the guidelines that they'd drawn up. Um, but the second the sort of more interesting question really was about the potential for doing good versus uh, incurring risk. And uh, I guess it makes sense that as a charitable organisation, your primary target even more important than doing good would be to avoid doing harm and as a blogger you know that may or may not be the the hierarchy of, of intentions certainly i'd had uh, anecdotal evidence that you know showing miserable crappy skeletal looking me versus me looking well you know had had been helpful for them i'm sure for some other people it wasn't um but do you have to bring everything back to that lowest common denominator of avoiding the tiniest potential to do harm at all costs so yeah, some really interesting things arose there. And, and I guess in, in general, there's a question about the sort of charitable agenda versus the research agenda and what we were what we were trying to do in, in our collaboration. But this comes back to that question about who, who gets to choose what goes out into the world and what are the, the reasons behind the choices. I guess in, in thinking about, you know, the memoir case and because I've been sort of ended up kind of accidentally writing one, even though I thought I would, a memoir was the last thing I wanted to write. I think people's reasons for writing such books are often not really very well interrogated by themselves. And often in particular, a kind of general awareness raising instinct or ambition may be getting conflated with a doing therapeutic good ambition. And I think actually those two uh, readerships may have almost orthogonal requirements when it comes to, you know, what kind of information you give them about eating disorders. If you generally know nothing about them, then it may be helpful to get all kinds of detail. If you know a lot because you've got one, uh, what you need is probably something entirely different. And that's where you're, I guess, the points about resonance versus specific kind of factual relatability may come in. 
but yeah, some really difficult questions there that I, I don't have answers to, but um, <laughs> um Harriet, I'd like to I'd like to ask you about that as well because it's obviously something that that you've you've got you've got experience with and and, and interest in. And in terms of sort of public understanding, as 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 Emily says, which may have completely different needs than than individual patient understanding, as as Emily said, maybe oppositional needs. Could you talk a little bit about how you see sort of cultural representations of, of eating disorders? A couple of things come to mind, maybe not specifically about cultural representations other than, you, you know, there's a lot of awareness raising that needs to be done around that eating disorders don't discriminate between genders, between um, backgrounds, between socioeconomic conditions, you know, that anybody can develop an eating disorder. One thing that came to mind while you were talking, Claire, was the idea that um, I often see a, 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 a development of, of, of understanding and thought in, in families. So often at the beginning when they come and so say on our family support programme and we do week one and, you know, I deliver week one and there's a couple of videos on the website or there's a book or something like that. And they um, or they want to take it and make their person look at it and that then they will know uh, why they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And will realise what they're doing and will change. And so they have to go through a, a development of kind of, of of starting to understand. You see the dawning of the realisation that that isn't going to be the way this works. You know, that these, that the, the stories that we have, the experiences that they read about are particular to those people and that actually they have to try and figure it out themselves. Um, and it is about trying to piece together the story of their family, which is uh, how they begin to navigate how to support their person. Um, I think particularly for somebody who's had an eating disorder for a long time, or for a young person who's kind of coming out of their eating disorder uh, into adulthood, it can be incredibly helpful for them to give themselves a story so that they understand what's happened to them. And I would have done this, you know, I work privately as well. So I would have done this with people a couple of times, you know, let's, let's, let's do the timeline. Let's figure it out. Let's give it a story because you want them to have a way, a narrative, a way of saying this happened to me and this is what happened you know this and then this and then this because it can be really helpful for them to have something to hang it on to tie it on in that way but that raises another issue which is the telling of one story and while that can raise public awareness you know in media we're always getting media requests you know but do you have somebody do you have a parent or somebody um, and while that's brilliant, because listening to a person speak is far different, say, from listening to me speak about that person. But then there is, I always feel slightly uncomfortable about it because that's always going to be there then. And it, they're always going to, you know, if they're Googled or whatever, that's that's what comes up. That's there. And I think that it's um, in in recovering from an eating disorder. There will be a time where the person will feel well and will want to tell their story and might tell it. But then there will be another bit where they want to move away from their story and not have it attached to them in that way anymore or be identified in that way. And that can be, I think that's a bit problematic. And I think that that's where 
this whole discussion is about the use of narratives and how it can be helpful at different points. And it absolutely can, but it can also be challenging for people or it can, you know, as Emily has said in the research, it's so interesting that the eating disorder mindset hones in on certain aspects and forgets all the, maybe all the positive stuff and just hones in on, you know, how they did certain bits or whatever. So we have to be really careful about that. But I suppose I would hope that people who have an eating disorder get to a point where it's no longer part of their life, you know, where they move away from it and um, they, they, they start a different chapter of their story. Yeah, to coin a phrase. And um, that's really, really well said. I, that, that idea of kind of your, your proximity to your, to your narrative is, is so important and it can become a kind of an entrapment almost. I was really struck by by um by something that that both you and and Emily pointed out that there is this this kind of um the sense of a boundary space which it, within which these narratives can take place. And you were talking about service providers and the duty to open up a safe space and that space of unknowing I thought was a really useful um a, just a really useful image. And and Emily you were similarly talking about the kind of the the seeking out of these very restrict kinds of narrative and as 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 a as a, a real a, a real problem so that idea of kind of op- narrative as opening boundaries rather than imposing boundaries i think is a, a really key one and giving giving again that resonant space giving giving kind of equip equipping patients and clinicians and children as as they as they become readers as they become as they kind of grow up to 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 find the language themselves to, to speak to the, their own stories. But one thing that I'd like to ask Liz about as well is we've, t- we've talked, Liz, you, you came at this from as, as, a, as a kind of a way of dealing with some of the emotional toll as a clinician of dealing with these um, dealing with these cases. And there's a balance again there between the clinician's experience of a patient's story and the patient's ownership of a patient's story, which seems to chime a lot, again, with this kind of idea of who owns a story and who gets to decide what we should know and what we should hear. So I wondered if you could just say a little bit about how you how you see the clinician as using the the, the, the patient's narrative or engaging with the patient's narrative in their own reflective practice as well. Yeah, that's a great question. It's a huge question, actually. So we all know when we go to the doctor with any kind of an illness, we have to be vulnerable. So I go to my GP about a problem. I have to be vulnerable. I have to share my story. I have to tell them about what's happening. I have to allow them to examine me. So immediately uh, I am physically vulnerable. You know, if people have talked a little bit about embodiment and embodied feelings. And um, so immediately we're into that sort of physical sensation. Uh, boundaries. If I if someone's going to examine me and do bloods, then that's intrusive. Okay. And now, if I'm a teenager with a, an eating disorder, and I'm in, in our hospital in the emergency department, say because my CAMS team have sent me in because I'm very unwell. Not only do I have to do, be vulnerable in all of those ways, I also now have to be weighed by someone who doesn't know me on a weighing scale that I'm not used to in the emergency department. In a, you know reasonably. Uh, public space. I mean, it's a, it's a treatment room, but it's still, it's not, you know, it's not home. It's not the clinic I'm used to. And I think that's really hard for adolescents, but actually it's hard for clinicians as well. Because clinicians don't want to cause distress. They don't want to upset people. They want to hear the story. They want to take the time to hear the narrative. Um, but if I'm the A&E doctor and there's 20 kids in the waiting room, you know, I don't have as much time maybe as I would like. And I still have to 
you know, do 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 the physical checks. Sometimes what's happening isn't ideal and that's difficult. Yeah. So some of this is about where you are on the pathway. Are you coming in to an emergency situation? It's different if you're in the CAM clinic and you're getting to know somebody over a long period of time, or if you're in the eating disorder specialist service where you're getting to know someone over a long period of time. Confidence and competence are going to be part of that. So if I'm a trainee and I've done lots of work in this area, I'm going to feel very confident about doing it. And hopefully, you know, that will be transmitted to the young person and their family. They'll know that or their carers, they'll, they'll, they'll know that. But sometimes it's not that easy. And the other thing is, of course, clinicians are not robots. They have lived experience as well. They have family members who get ill. They have family members who have eating disorders. They have friends who've had eating disorders. You know, they have stuff going on in their own lives. So all of that is present in the doctor-patient interaction when you meet in the emergency room or, or in a clinic or wherever. And I think in medicine and in um, clinical practice generally, we've had a lot of, of very, very significant difficulties around burnout um, or compassion fatigue. There are lots of different words for it. Um, and I think until relatively recently, this was very much located in the doctor. This was the problem with this particular doctor not being resilient enough. But I think the last few years in 2016 or 2017, the Lancet had an editorial showing, you know, burnout rates are three times higher in clinical practice than in other work environments. So we have to start asking ourselves, what are we doing wrong? Because these compassionate individuals generally who come into healthcare because they want to support and um, help people and they're interested in science. Like people come in for lots of reasons, but generally they come in and they're compassionate and something is happening. So one of the ways to think about that is thinking about how can we use narrative as a way of supporting reflective practice. And thinking about the doctor-patient relationship, what am I bringing to this as the doctor myself? What is the patient bringing to it? What is the parent or the carer bringing to it? All of those things. So we use two different kinds of narrative-based interventions here. One is called Schwartz Rounds and one is called Balint Groups. So um, I'm involved in both of those. And the Balint Groups, particularly for trainees, I think, are a space where they can talk about the emotional impact of the work and reflect on a particular story that has stayed with them. And I'd certainly say, you, you know, stories where the presenting problem or the case that the trainee is talking about involves a young person with an eating difficulty or where a Schwartz round, you know, involves uh, a team perhaps struggling to support somebody with an eating challenge. Those are cases that come up often because clinicians do struggle with these, with these cases. I think it's important that we recognise that, that, you know, that the clinicians aren't robots and they don't always get it right. Yeah. Uh, and that we need to think support teaching training and reflection are all a part of that now body wise have been absolutely fantastic on that front I think and certainly over the years I, I think this has come a long way Harriet from where things were you know 10 or 15 years ago and I think there's good recognition of this in the model of care for Ireland as well I think that's that's a really really useful response Liz thank you I'm conscious of time so um I, I'll, I'll wrap up now but I, it, one of the things that that really strikes me as a common theme throughout all of your really very different perspectives is the, the need to think about about narrative as a way of scaffolding a space of exploration be that in a clinical encounter both for the the patient and the doctor uh, or the or whatever whatever clinical practitioner is involved and also in further then in the journey of recovery, either working with with service providers like Bodywise, or moving on, kind of individually to think through and to be aware of 
what can what can direct your attention in various ways um, and even sort of much more um, much more broadly much more holistically developing the self as a critical reader as a critical thinker so much more nuanced than we're accustomed to think about and it's not just a case of you know give the doctors a story about somebody with an eating disorder give the patient a story of recovery and everybody's going to go home happy um but thinking in a much more nuanced way about how narrative works not just what it can what it can do or the stories it can tell but how it operates in those contexts, which I think is is really important, and of course, all of that further compounded and complicated when we're talking about young readers, young patients, um, and, and adolescents. So, all kinds of questions of dignity and control and power, all of which are, I think are really, really central to the to the mind reading project. So, it remains just for me to thank our panelists for today. Um, Harriet Parsons, Elizabeth Barrett, Emily Trishanko and Aoife Murray, thank you so much for your really, really rich contributions. Um, I really, we really appreciate it. And we found bringing together experts from, from different backgrounds so, so enriching and useful. So just thank you so much, all of you. <laughs>